going to start and we're going to end today with a contemplation. So first, I'm going to put an image up here on the screen. This is from Banksy in the Ukraine. He has been wandering around the country doing his, uh, if you're not familiar with Banksy, he does kind of street art incognito. Nobody knows the identity of Banksy. I'm not here to tell you I'm Banksy, but I'm also not saying that. And he's traveling around the Ukraine, different regions that have been opened up, some that aren't quite as open, and putting images of little children playing. And I just simply want to start with a contemplation today for you. The war-torn, ravaged places are the places that God makes beauty. These are the places that God brings to life. And we long for that. We see that. We're like, that's it. But my hope for you, as you just consider that God might be doing this with your very life today, that by his hand, the hands of the healer, that he surgically, carefully, patiently, yes, but by his powerful grace is truly making you new, truly making beauty from ashes, that truly beauty will save the world. And it's his beauty that's often marred by suffering and by our pain and our questions that God is doing work that we cannot imagine. And this, to me, just captures that in such a beautiful way. And so would you just pause for a moment, look at the picture, and say, Lord, what might you have for me today? You know, it's ironic that one of the most frequent greetings that we have in the English language is, how are you? Any of you asked that to somebody today? Any of you actually care about the answer, right? It's like, I mean, we have some expected answers that are well within the social contract in the realm of, okay, thank you. How are you? Good. Great. We can continue the conversation now. Or, you know, it's Princeton, so many of you are, you know, perhaps trying to existentially establish your own worth. And so when people ask you, how are you? What do you say? You say, I am busy. Or... Maybe some of you are a little bit pretentious and somebody says, how are you? And they respond, good. And they ask, how are you? And you say, I'm well. (laughs) Thank you. My third grade English teacher is mocking me still. If you think about it, we have all these accepted answers to this question. And if you were in a casual conversation in the lobby before the service, it's really beautiful to be together on a Sunday at 11 o'clock. It just feels very different. I also want to say too, if you have little kids in here and their, their calendars and their, their clocks are all thrown off, they are so welcome in here. Even if they're making noise, everybody's going to be okay. All right. Daylight savings was last week. This week's a little weird. If they're hungry, they're making noise. It's totally fine. Okay. But it would be a little strange if you're out there having a nice casual conversation and, you know, just the social contract says you don't really go into the heavy stuff in that kind of of setting. Like if you'd been sick in the last week, that's within the accepted norms of conversation. Yeah, I had a cold this week. Oh, you know, we had COVID a couple weeks ago. Family, like sickness went through the house. Everybody can talk about that, right? 
But if you'd had a particularly hard week, like your anxiety was, was particularly heavy or you uh, some really tense relationships in the house, somebody says, how are you? You're like, well, yeah, I've been dealing with this thing, just feeling this darkness, these dark clouds. People are like, okay, that's a lot. We've, we've really jumped in the deep end here. And all this kind of says that we have this compartmentalized view of health, of what is wellness. This is reflected in our medical field and even in our medical training. In his book, The Song of Our Scars, Harvard-trained physician, Hader Warwick writes of the way that medical practice has been impeded by the assembly line model. Basically, the Henry Ford model has been applied to our bodies, and these different parts are supposed to work and fit together, and people specialize in these different ways. And he says, by turning persons into patients and healers into healthcare providers, and by separating the body from the mind, physical sensations from the emotional states, and pain from suffering, medicine is nothing more than a misguided miseducation in mortal misery. Bessel van der Kolk wrote a book that many of you have interacted with called The Body Keeps the Score. And he began to explore the ways that trauma would manifest itself physiologically would explore the ways that actually trauma kept people from being able to heal and these interconnectedness of the different systems of the body. And he writes, after trauma, the world is experienced with a different nervous system. The survivor's energy now becomes focused on suppressing inner chaos at the expense of spontaneous involvement in their lives. What he's saying is they're just not present. There's always this kind of fight to suppress the darkness that seems to be bowing at the door. These attempts to maintain control over unbearable physiological reactions can result in a whole range of physical symptoms, including fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, and other autoimmune diseases. This explains why it is critical for a trauma treatment to engage the entire organism, body, mind, and brain. Jesus of Nazareth, in this very interesting interaction in John chapter 5, will ask a man who was born from the day he was walking the earth, or not walking, from the day he was born without the ability to walk. And he asked this man who could not walk, he said, do you want to be made well? Which seems like a perplexing question. And Jesus heals the man. And then some things establish and elapse in the story. And then Jesus meets this man a bit later. And after healing this man, Jesus says to him, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now that may seem like a strange thing for Jesus to say to a man who was born without the ability to walk that he just healed. Why does Jesus say that? Jesus is not threatening this man, but he's showing us, he's giving us a vision that the Bible's version of health is much more broader and much more integrated than our own. This man's healing is a glimpse of the way that God is so thoroughly healing us in our lives. There's so many physical healings throughout the gospel stories, but they're always pointing to something wider. And I use that phrase wider, not deeper, because oftentimes we, we tend to associate our bodies with the surface level stuff, right? But our bodies are not just the surface level stuff. They're a part of a wider orbit, of our mind, our heart, our soul. Jesus will say this when he says, what is the greatest commandment? That our worship would be integrated. And so your body is not just the surface level manifestation of who you are. It's a part of who you are. Jesus, upon his resurrection, has a body. He tells Thomas to touch and to see. Diane Langberg, in reflecting on what Jesus endured, says that Jesus will be the only one who has scars in heaven. His scars redeem the world. But our bodies are a part of this wider orbit. 
And God wants to heal the whole of who we are. We are made in his image. And God is wanting to so thoroughly work his healing in our lives. Theologian Brian Brock writes of his son, Adam, who has severe autism and Down syndrome. And he writes of his son, he says, Adam is the healthiest person I know. Adam lives with incredible grace, without worry for the morrow. He is a friend with time, his body and the people with whom he shares his days. What Brian Brock is trying to do is to begin to poke at our notion of what does it mean to be well? What does it mean to be healthy? Is it just that we don't uh, experience any sort of physical discomfort in our body? Or is there something else that God is doing? Scholar Amy Kinney, in her poignant book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, writes of her experiences with disability, specifically disability in the church. She says that often people want to come and they want to pray for me, and I welcome that. I understand what they're trying to do with that impulse. But what she's trying to say and to be a witness to is that God is already doing so much in and through her life. And she says, to suggest that I am anything less than sanctified and redeemed is to suppress the image of God in my disabled body and to limit how God is already working through my life. All of this, friends, is trying to expand our imaginations. There is more to being healthy than feeling physically well at any given moment. The Bible's vision of health is the all-encompassing term shalom. Shalom is a vision of fullness, of healing, of abundance, of reconciliation, of potential. So what does it mean to actually be well? And how do we begin to invite God's holistic healing into our lives? Today, we're going to look at a story that I think approaches this from maybe a bit of a different angle. But to start down this journey of what it means to be made well, to allow the hands of the healer to perform his great act of divine and gracious and compassionate surgery in our lives, transforming us, as Paul says, from glory to glory. So if you have a Bible or you want to look along on the phone, you can turn over to Genesis 32. Lord Jesus, as we open your word, God, would you speak to us? Lord, would your words... Meet us here, God, with comfort, God, with conviction, God, with the knowledge that we are in the inner ring of your divine life. God, Father, Spirit, and Son, sharing their never-failing love and mercy and goodness, God, with us, that we truly are, as we sang, standing in the midst of your promise, Lord Jesus. So would you meet us here? We ask humbly and expectantly in your name, in the beautiful name of the Father, Spirit, and Son. Amen. All right, in Genesis 32, Jacob is preparing for a reunion with his long-lost brother. Now, if you know the story of Jacob, Jacob is not expecting this reunion to be a long, joyful, tear-filled embrace to see his brother, whom he has not seen for many, many years. No, Jacob thinks that when he sees his brother next, that his brother is going to murder him. Because so many years ago, Jacob stole so much from his brother Esau. So Jacob tries to do what he's always done. This is what Jacob is really good at, manipulating situations. And so Jacob knows that he and Esau are on this path of convergence, that their paths are going to cross. And so he starts sending gifts to Esau. 
just trying to curry some little bit of favor with his brother saying, hey, I'm not so bad. Hey, all that stuff that I stole long ago, here's a little bit of it back. So Jacob is trying to prepare in every way for this meeting that he is certain is filled with certain doom. And we pick up our story as the faithful night comes. And I think so many of us can relate to this. Have you ever had a night where you feared or you dreaded what the day would bring? Sleep wouldn't come easy. You're staring down what's next and you're just saying, I don't know what to do. Jacob is in that place, that place of fear, that place of uh, absolute confusion, that place when it seems like the world is falling apart at the seams. This is where we find Jacob. Genesis 32, verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. And so it says poignantly in verse 24, so Jacob was left alone. And truly in every way, Jacob is relationally alone. His stuff is gone. Everything that sort of manifests as his earthly life is now been stripped away. Jacob is alone. The dark night of the soul. And then the text just casually says next, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And who among us hasn't been in this dark place of the soul and had some stranger show up and try to wrestle us? Like, it is important that we recognize this, friends. The Bible is very funny. Like, this is a pivotal moment in the story of God's salvation. And it's like pure, like WWF, or I guess they call it WWE. Like, what is going on here? A wrestling match, not only to meet Jacob in the dark night of his soul, but a wrestling match of profound theological significance. All right, let's look at what's going on. Verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, He touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him and he was limping because of his hip. Jacob, staring down what he thinks is a day that holds nothing but doom, ends up meeting with God in a profound way. God is so viscerally present with Jacob. You can almost imagine the way that Jacob was feeling this dark night of the soul and then this stranger shows up and then that Jacob realizes in hindsight that is in fact God. And friends, to us today, this is who God is. God shows up at the end of our ropes, as Dallas Willard says, that is his address. This is where God meets us. And so friends, no matter where you find yourselves today, you are not removed from the presence of God because God is so faithful that he will come to us in the dark nights that we experience. And you could ask the question, which would be a very good question. Why is God not tenderly consoling Jacob? Why isn't he just telling him, hey, you know, I've seen the future, I'm God, it's all gonna be fine. 
you and your brother, you're going to be good. Why, why does he behave in the way that he does? And all we can see for certain here, in absence of all the details that we're not told, is the overwhelming force of God's presence. That God is flooding Jacob's reality with his reality in a like vis- visceral, physical wrestling match. And we see, this is so important for us as we talk about what it means to begin to embrace healing, that God not only honors this wrestling, God not only participates in it, he blesses it. Courtney and I spent much time in prayer and discernment around each of our children's names. How could we, as those God entrusted to be parents to these specific precious souls, speak a word, a first word of blessing? How could our words create worlds in their lives from the very outset? So we sought names that that would declare that they are loved by God and by us, that they have a purpose in the world to declare the beauty of God's incredible salvation story. Names have power. We have Evie Anna Saren, which means life and grace and peace. This is who God is. I'm gonna cry saying these. Aurora Bell beautiful dawn, the resurrection of Jesus that changes everything. Sullivan John, the the light of the gospel overcomes the darkness of our world. Sullivan means dark-eyed one in Irish, sort of Gaelic. And so John is the gospel of light. And then Silas Peterson, that our lives, because they're in the hands of God, are like a forest. He does so much more with them. He extends them beyond our lives. They leave a legacy in the honor of our our dear mother-in-law, Carol. Names have power, and you know that, and God knows that. And look at the name that God chooses, that he blesses for Jacob. He gives not only to Jacob, but to his covenant people. He says in verse 28, Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and if, with humans and have overcome. Ecclesia, God honors the wrestle, the struggle. It's interesting that God did not name Jacob promised land because that's where he was going. Or he did not name him Garden of Eden because that's what was lost. No, God has something in the actual struggle, in the fight to, to, to hold on to God, to find him in the dark night of the soul, God blesses that. And the way that the fight ends is just when God decides that it's over. As the dawn begins to break, now I, again, I mentioned that we have some small children. I have a five-year-old who has, uh, has adopted combat as his primary love language. And, you know, I, I, I entertain it for a while, but sometimes I'm like, this needs to end. And it's over. It won't always be that way, but right now I can, I can subdue him. And God fights with Jacob through the dark night. And as the dawn is coming, it's interesting that God stays with Jacob the whole night. It's often something that we miss in this, but he's with him the whole night. But then God decides this is over. Verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man The sun rose and he was limping because of his hip. Now from everything that we can gather, especially given the the actual duration of this combat, Jacob was a healthy man when this night started. Jacob was physically able. I mean, he's able to wrestle God through the night. But as the dawn arises, this 
God, this strange, strange, present, overwhelming force, God touches Jacob's hip. And it says that he walks with a limp. Jacob walks with a limp away from this confrontation. Jacob's health in one way has decreased. But from another way, this wild man has been wondrously wounded in such a way that he has become a sign of God's presence. You remember why Jacob was so overcome with fear and with confusion about what the next day would hold because he was going to meet his brother Esau? If you look in Genesis chapter 33, the next day Jacob does, in fact, meet Esau. But this meeting is not one of confrontation, not one of conflict. It is a meeting of reconciliation. Much like the father runs down the road to meet the long lost wayward prodigal son, there's a meeting filled with tears and a a joyful embrace. In Genesis 33 verse 4 it says, But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around him and kissed him and they wept. And then later Jacob, able to see in his long lost brother the very thing that he saw the night before, says to Esau, he says, Seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. Jacob walks now with a limp, but he's put down all of the striving, all of the manipulating, all of the deceit. That which was shattered in his own family is beginning to be repaired. And Ecclesia, I think sometimes we miss, we mistake that which makes us strong. We, we think that our abilities, that our gifts, that our ability to to attract a crowd around us or to be uh, impressive, that that's what makes us strong. But Jacob started the evening strong and he walked away with a limp, but he walked away with healing in his bones. Health, friends, when we begin to consider what does it mean to be well, is the presence of our God. And our responding to God by not letting him go as Jacob did, by saying to God, I need you, I need you here. In Matthew Perry's recently published memoir, he talks about his battle with addiction that has nearly killed him on several occasions. And he writes about one moment when he was at the end of his rope. He's struggling with that fog of like, I can't overcome this. I can't do anything beyond this. And he says that I just cried out in the darkness. I said, God, please help me. I whispered, show me that you are here. God, please help me. And friends, if that's the only prayer that you have to offer, if that's all that you have to give, that is where God meets us. That is where God delights to bring beauty from our brokenness, beauty from our shame, beauty from the places that we feel like nothing could ever grow again. This is who our God is. And then Matthew Perry says, in that moment, because God is faithful, friends, like this is the most true and and, and sort of testimony that I can bear to you is that God will meet you. And I have to say that to you in faith because I can't make that happen. But as we cry out to our God who is so good, he will meet us in that place. And Matthew Perry found that as he cried out to God, that God met him there. And he says, I started to cry. I mean, I really started to cry. I wasn't crying because I was sad. I was crying because for the first time in my life, I felt okay. I felt safe, taken care of. Decades of struggling with God and wrestling with life and sadness all was being washed away. Like a river of pain gone into oblivion. I had been in the presence of God. I was certain of it. 
And this time I prayed for the right thing. Help. And friends, as we talk about what it means to be made well, we, we tend to focus on the outcome. The end of the story. Can we put a period on it? And there's so many beautiful testimonies that come from those places. And so we don't, we don't in any way diminish that. But so often we need to see God in the wrestle. We need to see God will not leave through the dark night. That often the most articulate prayer that we can pray is simply what Matthew Perry prayed. Help me, God. And that is a prescription for health in the absolute depths of everything that we could ever experience. And it's a prescription for health. When the sun is shining, when we feel the joy and the goodness of God, we are people who need God. And that is what it means to be made well. To live in light of our God and King who made you in his image, who designed you for flourishing and fullness, even though your body may fail you. Even though the story may not work out in the way that you wanted it to, God is there bringing his healing as sure as the dawn will rise. This is who our God is. Jesus will say it this way. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. And friends, to the extent that we're willing to acknowledge that all is not well, except in the hands of the one who makes all things new, to the extent that we're willing to acknowledge that being at the mercy of our God is the safest, most beautiful, most prosperous place that we can be in, we find that Jesus is there. And so I'm going to invite you just to a moment of contemplation. We started with contemplating an image. Now I'm going to invite you to contemplate some words as the worship team makes their way to the front. As we move to the table. The scriptures declare to us that by the wounds of Jesus, we have been healed. That we are made whole. And this is because Jesus' unfailing love and mercy have not only forgiven our sins, friends. If, if you receive the life that Jesus has for you, you confess your sin, as 1 John says, he is faithful and just. You are forgiven. There is nothing else you need to do. That is the scandal of grace. But it's not just that. It's more. It's not less than that, but God is doing so much more in bringing us to fullness, in bringing his shalom and the nearness of his kingdom into our very lived realities. And Jesus on the cross experiences not only physical wounding, that is very obvious, but spiritual, emotional, communal, relational wounding. And by his wounds, we are healed. And so as we move to the table today, I simply want to invite you to close your eyes and to use your imaginations. Our imaginations are often the forefront of our healing. And to hear the story of what Jesus has done for each one of us, to see our God drawing near and to consider how God might wanting to be working his healing, his grace, his restoration in our very lives. So I'm going to invite our communion service to come forward. As they do that, I'm going to lead us to the table and then I'm going to read some words from...